it's always a good reminder too. I love the getting the attention piece because mm-hmm. it's something that I tend to forget when, you know, designing professional development, things like that. You just walk in and start into your role. But mm-hmm. a lot of times just taking a moment to make sure everybody's gathered, so to speak, in that same cognitive space can be quite powerful. But it also reminded me of your story and needing to make sure that the, the your students were aware of why they were needing yeah. to um, to learn what they were learning. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. Instructional design as a term has many definitions, with no two being exactly alike. One in particular that has stuck with me over the years is the systematic presentation of instructional sequences based upon a theory of learning. According to this definition, learning theory is an essential component of instructional design making up at least one-third of this definition alone. Those who have come into the field of instructional design, or even education in general, from a post-secondary pathway, are inculcated with the importance of building learning interventions that are founded upon proven learning theories or that integrate any number of time-tested philosophies and models from within the field of education. Students of these programs, such as myself, are imbued with the necessity for integrating research-based learning theories, models, principles, and any other related frameworks in order to build successful learning interventions. You may remember, as I do, being immersed in the historical, psychological, and social foundations of learning and curriculum design, and as a result, having to write countless essays and create numerous deliverables intended to serve as demonstrations of our mastery of critical instructional theories, their author, and proper application in a real-world context. Thenceforth, we, the learner, move on to the professional world and become embedded within institutions in which we establish our sphere of influence and invariably begin to preach the virtues of such prescriptive, research-based models, theories, and principles in the same way that they were passed on to us. However, it is no secret that the ivory tower exists above the trenches in a state of privileged seclusion from the practicalities of the real world. So, does the knowledge of textbooks apply to real-world problems? On this episode of IBD, I want to look beyond the ivory tower and get an insight into what these concepts actually look like when applied to real-life situations. We'll be hearing from my colleagues, who are professionals in the field, to find out how they escaped the ivory tower and successfully bridged the gap between theory and practice. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Aaron Kraft from the Academic Innovation Team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my colleagues, Celia Katraitiwa, Jeanette Senegal. So today's episode is going to be a little unique where I want each of us to recall a time when we took a learning theory or instructional design theory or just anything related to learning design in general and actualized it into practice. So here's the format that I wanted to work with. One, explain the problem to be solved. Two, define and elaborate on the theory you chose to utilize. And three, reflect on what worked and what didn't. Jeanette, would you like to start us off? Uh, Yes, absolutely. So several years ago, I was teaching a course not for ASU. 
um, for another institution, and it was for pre-service teachers based on instructional technology, a variety of topics. And um, the course was loosely organized as a framework around the uh, student standards published by the International Society for Technology and Education, or ISTE. And they kind of break apart these standards into six general blocks. And although the course was based in a, a project-based mode, each component of the project had to relate to one of the six standards. The actual delivery, the, the actual teaching component of this course, it was face-to-face, -face, but the logistics dictated that we met once a week for five hours in the evening. Oh, wow. So as you can imagine, I had some students who were working full-time, yeah. who were parents, and a five-hour marathon course was a little challenging. That's intense. It was sure. intense. Yeah. And also, you know, being pre-service educators, they really were focused more kind of on their curriculum area rather mm. than just this isolated technology component. So in general, there were evenings where they were tired, their eyes were glazing over, they had a hard time connecting the dots between parts of a project to the overall goals of the course. So one of the things that stimulated my thinking around this is I was actually organizing my bookcase at home and I ran across my copy of Malcolm Knowles' book about andragogy mm -hmm. and adult learning principles. And I thought, hey, these students, they're pretty much adults. Maybe there's something here I can play with and find a way to bring them back in and help them get through those moments when they're tired, they're overwhelmed, they're, you know, they, they need something to help them get through. So you wanted to integrate some tried and true andragogy yes. from the OG himself. Adult learning principles, absolutely. Um, and so the first thing I'll say about andragogy is a shout out to Aaron's previous episode we uh, had in oh. season two, the mature matriculator, which is all about andragogy. So everybody should go listen to that episode Despite what right you think now. That title might mean <laughs> it's about andragogy. That's right. So first of all, recommendation, go check out that episode. It's a lot of fun. Um, it but anyway, was, it was a good episode. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I love the topic. I, I think whenever we're interfacing with adults, it's nice to have some theoretical underpinnings when we're trying to, to deal with that. Anyway, so back to my students, mm -hmm. poor marathon, five hour course, yeah. you know, people. And also, again, this sort of unfolding component is it felt very vague to them. Like they're talking about digital citizenship with preschoolers and it's 9 p.m. at night and they have no idea what that means. They're like, I just want my kids to be able to work with math, right? So um, one of the solutions uh, I you know, thought through here was this need in adult learning for them to know why they need to learn something, to learn experientially, and to find that immediate value. Mm. So the first intervention, if you will, was to introduce a small reflective activity at the end of every class, which linked both the topics of the day with the broader themes of the standards and the projects that they were working toward. Mm -hmm. So that was essentially their ticket out. So there was some reflection that made hopefully that value of the project and the components much more real for them. The other thing that I invited them to do was to think about the courses they were taking as an adult learner and evaluate them. Why do I need to know this stuff? I'm a learner in this course. Is my instructor using adult learning principles to support me? And then I asked them to bring that insight back to the course and have some conversation around it. So in other words, they got to spill all the dirty secrets from their other courses that they were not oh. feeling well taught. <laughs> so a so lot to talk about there. Yeah, exactly. Safe space. But anyway, it, it provided a way for them to think about 
their experience as a learner and how it will ideally connect to their experiences as a future educator. Oh, that's great. I find that, and I don't, for me, it's low hanging fruit, but I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think that diminishes the quality of the experience at all. I think that if you're talking about andragogy, you need to recognize the learner as uh, somebody who brings to the table a lot of experience. Absolutely. And that experience in one way or another needs to be validated, even if it's understanding that at no time in their life have they approached the subject before, just realizing that they still become the subject of their own learning. It also forced me to rethink, you know, in andragogy, we talk a lot about this idea that adult learners are self-directed. And instead of being an instructor, we need to be a facilitator and work with them in that way. That wasn't necessarily always the case. Again, this course for them felt like a requirement they had to do rather than something that they were inherently interested in. So they were checking a box, for lack of a better word. And so their level of self-directedness around these projects was a little lower than you might kind of expect, I guess. Um, so I had to think about how those reflections and, and developing a clear understanding of their motivations would help bolster that self-directedness. Yeah, I think with andragogy, there's a, a really thin line between pedagogy and andragogy because you you tend to think, OK, they're adults. They should be self-directed. They should be able to do this on their own and just go out and work. But really, you still have to do that whole facilitation and guide them into mm -hmm. doing that, but making those connections so that they are clear as to why they're having to do right. that, just like you would in pedagogy. I'm right. making sure that the students are aware. Yeah, and reflection is a good first step. What do you know concerning this topic? And let me show you which direction we're going to move in. Mm -hmm. So yeah, pull together all your previous knowledge and experience, and then let's jump forward from there is a, is a good way to get started on that. I find that, like my son, he's, um, he's about to turn four. We went up to a, a butterfly conservatory over the weekend, and all of a sudden, his world got a little bit bigger. He didn't know about butterflies other than maybe what he saw in the backyard or on uh, YouTube, right, for example. But now he knows that butterflies, uh, monarch butterflies, lay eggs on milkweed because that's what they were showing us at the conservatory, right? For him, every day is this blank canvas and anything's possible. I can, I can introduce him to nearly anything. I introduced him to those uh, little flowers that grow on the weeds where you can blow on them because it's springtime right now. Oh, so. yeah, like a dandelion? Yeah, exactly. And, and he went through the, our entire backyard, found every one of them and blew them into the wind. And it was so cute. He learned that, right? But as adults, it's different. Why are you telling me this? Why am I being forced to sit here and check this box? That is critical because if you don't attack that question first, you might lose them from the beginning. That relevancy. Yeah. You're mm -hmm. absolutely right. It's a great example. I have a little bit of a rant when it, um, in thinking about the monologue, um, you reference the post-secondary pathway in instructional design, but knowing that we all don't come from instructional design, we all have a different, we've all learned these different methods and learning theories from other places. And so that line kind of got me because I thought, OK, we've talked about how we all don't have that same. We all don't come in from that same experience. So I would never say that my my knowledge of learning theory ever came from my post. -set. Well, first, it started in um, my undergrad with mm -hmm. education before going into post-secondary. I just um, transferred that knowledge into a more specific field of reading going into post-secondary. So I just wanted to 
go over that No, piece. I appreciate that. So I try to be more inclusive because I, I say those who have come into the field of instructional design or even education in general mm-hmm. from a post-secondary pathway. And I got to say, you're the first person I've met that received uh, their uh, undergrad degree in education, then went on in the field of education uh, for their masters as uh-huh. well. So I think like me, my, my undergraduate was in international studies. It wasn't mm-hmm. even related. So. <laughs> but uh, in, okay, so in this case, uh, yeah, I should probably just erase that. And, uh, I wouldn't <laughs> say erase, but I just I had to clear that because there might be other listeners who are listening and thinking, well, I didn't come in that way. And does that mean that I don't like I didn't learn theory here or that's exactly what it means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to go over that. I appreciate it. Thank you, Celia, for correcting um, me. Continue. <laughs> Check mark. <laughs> <laughs> we checked that box for the day. <laughs> that's a just daily kidding. check. Okay. Um, so mine is backwards design. And this was something that I did learn early on through um, my undergrad or actually my post back in education. And I use this in K-12 and which then led into using it with uh, some digital storytelling workshops that I used to teach in a summer outreach program to teachers who were in low income schools. Uh, We used the backwards design model in thinking about what they wanted to accomplish. So, of course, the backwards design model, which is Wiggins and McTeague. And I still have the book sitting on my desk because it's just one of those uh, models that I've it's just always worked with everything that I've done. And it always starts with the objectives, which is sometimes things that we forget, because in a lot of other models or ways of thinking about building course design, We tend to think about, okay, what do we want them to do? What are some of these books that we want them to read? What are the activities we want them to work through? And what are these papers we want to write? But we often forget about making that connection completely to the outcomes and to the evaluation themselves to make sure that all of them connect. And that's something that backwards design does. So when we were building out our digital storytelling We, of course, started with the objectives because you can easily get lost in media. Of course, it's fun. You're building things. And I find that it happens the same with any sort of educational technology that you use, is that you start to get lost in the medium. And whether you're using, I don't know, Flipgrid to run your discussion posts or Yellow Yellow Dig to run your discussions, you start to lose yourself in the actual technology rather than thinking about why it is that you're using the technology. So we used it there, but I also brought it along with me when I started in instructional design. And I didn't come into instructional design with a formal education background in it. So I didn't, you know, study all of these different instructional design models. But when I did come into it and I started to look at the different instructional design models, I noticed that, you know, they're not too different from what I had already been doing in in my K-12 experience. But Backwards design was one of the things that stuck and it it goes across um, from K-12 into higher education because it's something that works. It's something that allows you to look at the bigger picture and then make the decisions that are needed. You start with the bigger picture, look at how you want to evaluate, and then you start to take a look at what is going to fill those 
those needs? How are you going to get there? Where the other model that I've seen has been Addy, and that's a huge one for instructional design, but that starts with analyzing and then designing and developing. So you can kind of see that they almost um, go against each other. And I wouldn't say that Addy is, you know, um, something that I wouldn't use. I, I'm pretty sure I have probably if I dig deep into some of the work that I've done with faculty, I've probably gone the um, Addy route, depending on how the course was already set up. But I know that there was a time where I worked with one faculty in particular in designing her course, and we used the backwards design model without me naming it to her. My questioning to her came from the backwards design model of how do we build her course. And, and for people who may not know, ADDI stands for... Oh, I'm sorry. ADDI stands for Analyze, Design, Develop, Implement, Then Evaluate. And you don't think you can do that with a backwards design approach? You can, but with ADDI, that's the, that's the way around. Mm -hmm. their, their model is to go from those steps. So analyze, design, develop, and it all kind of works the same. But with backwards design, and I have to look at my notes, you start with the bigger picture in mind with the objectives, and then you go into determining the evidence. So you kind of skip all those middle pieces and you go right over to your evidence and then looking at your learning experience and instruction. Like, how are you going to actually get there? Right. So you're saying that you start with the course objective. What is it that by the end of this mm -hmm. course, the students are supposed to learn? And you're considering that the big picture. You're looking yes. at the big picture. Mm -hmm. So that you start there and then you work backwards how to basically scaffold towards that objective. Exactly. Yeah. And so evidence, you're, you're thinking about things like what kind of assessment could I design mm -hmm. um, to show me that they've achieved a competence or mm -hmm. can, you know, perform a skill or whatever the case may be. And then working backwards from there, what scaffolding, to use your word, Aaron, and materials mm -hmm. do they need to be able to give that evidence that. Mm -hmm. in an yeah. assessment? Yeah, whereas I see that a lot of the times um, faculty might be starting out with all of the materials and right. then figuring out how to fit it in or how to right. kind of work with it rather than starting out with, well, what materials do you even need to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? That's a good point. I love the fact that you raised this idea that um, I think at times all of us have been maybe just instinctively working in a certain way or using certain techniques. And at some point we realized that was actually a pretty organized and, and uh, rational way to do that work, but we didn't mm -hmm. necessarily know the names for the theories or the models mm -hmm. or the techniques. And that's been kind of an unfolding journey for me as well. Where it was like, oh, that that idea of andragogy where adults need to know why they're learning something mm -hmm. and expecting them to be a little bit more self-directed in the way that your son might not be, Aaron, mm -hmm. for an example, is it it became more apparent over time. But I didn't necessarily have that theoretical model until mm -hmm. I took that class in a mm -hmm. master's program. Yeah. What a great segue to my example. Awesome. <laughs> I taught. English in Asia for seven years total. And I was teaching mostly to young learners. So I did a stint with a school that was uh, basically bought by the textbook publisher Pearson. And I would have anywhere from, well, I'd have about 12 to 15 three-year-olds in the classroom for about an hour and a half. Just let that sink in for a moment. Wow. Or 12 to 15 five to eight-year-olds for an hour and a half in the classroom. So it, it, things could get pretty brutal if you didn't <laughs> plan well and make things exciting at the same time, right? So 
from the beginning of my teaching journey, even before I took this job, I would have to, they would send us to these uh, uh, like professional development workshops, maybe about twice a year. And I, I remember each of these workshops across the jobs, we're always teaching a, a sort of a prescriptive approach towards teaching. It was very structured. And I found that with a little bit of ad adaptation, I was able to use that and leverage that to great success in the courses. The students were always excited. They passed my courses, uh, you know, not to brag, but you know, they, <laughs> they did. Um, I would have almost 100% success rate with the little kids. So um, I really enjoyed the approach. And it wasn't until I went to grad school that I realized that I had been employing Gagne's nine events for a good five to seven years. Ooh. Hi. Yeah. So I'm going to go over that now in mm -hmm. <laughs> grueling detail. Now I'll try to go through this quickly because by the time I get to number nine, I'm sure we'll forget one through eight. <laughs> Gagne's nine events of instructions, the definition reads, is a series of events which follow a systematic instructional design process that share the behaviorist approach to learning with a focus on the outcomes or behaviors of instruction or training. Okay. So number one is gain the attention of students. I would come into class. I would have an activity ready to go. We had an interactive whiteboard. So I would load up an activity, a song, a dance, something English related. And we might dance the ABCs, for example something with a lot of movement, something to get their attention and get them ready to learn. Number two, inform the students of the objectives. I actually did that third, so I'm going to go to number three. Stimulate recall of prior learning. So I would actually go from the introduction to stimulating what we did last week. Does anybody, re <clears throat> does anybody remember what we learned last week? And the students would say, oh, we learned the letters uh, E and F, for example. Good, and what words start with E and F? And we'll play another activity with that, so that gets them warmed up. Then I would do number two, which was I would tell the students what we're learning today. I would inform them of today's objectives. Well, today we're going to learn G and H. Right? So it's a natural continuation. I would present the content. I would try to do that in a way that was exciting through videos and more songs and activities so they could get into it and get motivated. Number five, provide learning guidance. So I would help, but you know, this is basically for me, uh, the scaffolding. This is a real time, <laughs> uh, me helping a three-year-old to understand uh, the, the sound of the, the letter G or whatever, as we do these activities, right? And then elicit performance. So at, after I presented the content and everybody seemed comfortable, I would have them present the content back to me, either through an activity they could get together in groups if they're a little bit older and, and, and draw and even make up a little play. Maybe sometimes they'd have like a little two or three sentence play that they would do with their friend in the classroom in front of everybody. Or they maybe do it with me and the, the co-teacher, right? Uh, so they would present the material and then we would give them feedback on that, which I believe is uh, number seven. So tell them basically, good job or be careful, G says guh. In this situation, not ja. That was a common mistake, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mixing up G and uh, J. So now I got, I would make it to about step seven there before I started to fall off because I didn't realize that I was actually supposed to stick with Gagne's nine events at the time. But, uh, you know, we, uh, number eight was to assess performance. And we, I would test them about once a month. So the assessment didn't necessarily happen in the room at the time, right? I would give them the feedback, but I, I wouldn't necessarily assess beyond that. And then number nine is enhance retention and transfer to job, which obviously three-year-olds don't have jobs. <laughs> so, 
But I would notice that sometimes they would use the language back at me if I was teaching them thank you, for example, mm -hmm. and when to use it, they would use it back to me in situations outside the classroom. So, you know, transferring those skills from the classroom to the real world is, uh, is basically the intent of number nine. But there was no real way to do that. So I think upon reflection, I would probably have slightly stronger assessments at the end. And then as far as transfer, well, you could just you cross your fingers and hope that when you see them next week, they remembered everything you taught them last week. But this wasn't like a public school kind of thing. So they, we, weren't aim, yeah, we weren't aiming towards uh, standardized tests or anything. So I think that kind of interfered with a little bit of the uh, nine events here. But uh, more or less, that was the flow. And it was remarkably successful for me. I think my only critique is that you, it's hard to use that sort of behaviorist approach outside of that particular context if you're dealing with adult learners for example like uh, in your situation Jeanette mm -hmm. I'm not sure that kind of structure would relay very well okay so one thing that caught me was where you said you started to fall off on the assessment and mm -hmm. then the um enhancing the retention and transfer so yeah. I would almost say that you probably did and didn't consciously do it oh I would think that maybe you were throwing in some sort of maybe it wasn't um, you're looking more at the summative assessment that you were creating, but maybe you were throwing in some formative that you didn't realize when in assessing because I'm I would think that you would have been checking to see where they're at and knowing that they were able to move forward. Oh, absolutely. And just throwing them to the side like, all right, we already went over G and H and we're moving on, <laughs> whether you know it or not. I would have them present but, their, what they've learned to the class and I would mm -hmm. give them feedback. But I didn't want to be too critical because you want them to yeah. have fun with it. But if you're hearing that they're using it mm -hmm. and they're and like you said, you know, you would sometimes hear them um, using it like if you were teaching them thank you or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that to me would be something to bring back to know that okay they are learning this i can continue to move right and that, that's transfer but mm -hmm. you don't always get an opportunity to catch the students in their natural elements yeah especially when there are 13 of them and you got one <laughs> class right after the other because you know it, essentially it was a money-making operation that's true you know. so maybe that's the difference too and sort of on the fly assessment versus something that you're documenting you're you're mm -hmm. oh, yeah. capturing you know standardized testing scores yeah but i assume that within the flow of that teaching experience if you knew you had a couple students who were struggling a little bit more than the group or they weren't quite ready to move on you would mm -hmm. kind of know that you, mm -hmm. you would or inherently you find a way mm -hmm. yeah to, to support them, move them forward as they were able to. So to me, that's a form of assessment too, even though yeah. you may not have been documenting it with test scores, mm -hmm. right. but your, your uh, understanding of their progression certainly would still, would still be occurring. Oh, and that's a great point. So mm -hmm. perhaps the assessment was occurring. It, mm -hmm. It's sounding like just maybe not. I don't know if it's to the level that Gagne intended when he wrote this out, <laughs> or maybe it is. You know, I'm but not it sure. might be more of a natural assessment that, you know, you're not consciously aware, like, OK, I'm checking these boxes to make sure that they did this, yeah. but a more like a natural approach to the assessment. It, it was definitely like that because it had to be. There was just no way to sit down for five minutes and <laughs> write down everybody's progress for the day. It just, yeah. You know, things didn't work out that way. Which is how formative and summative were kind of differentiate. Or different, yeah. Like the difference, be, the differences between the two. And that's a good point. The formative was strong. The summative would happen about once a month. Mm -hmm. So. Which yeah. is normal. Let's, yeah. you know. Yeah, it is. it is. But I found it successful. I, I think if I taught uh, in, a, in a similar context again, 
I would need a lot of caffeine and <laughs> I would definitely uh, use this approach mm -hmm. uh, at least More as consciously. a starting point. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It's always a good reminder too. I love the getting the attention piece because mm -hmm. it's something that I tend to forget when, you know, designing professional development, things like that. You just walk in and start into your role. But mm -hmm. a lot of times just taking a moment to make sure everybody's gathered, so to speak, in that same cognitive space can be quite powerful. But it also reminded me of your story and needing to make sure that the, the your students were aware of why they were needing yeah. to um, to learn what they were learning. Mm -hmm. So it might be, you know, a different way of phrasing it or putting it down like um you, you talked about recall and when I was teaching. So one of the things that I have a hard time with sometimes is that I know a lot of these pieces, but I still think of them in a, in a K-12 mindset and use some of that verbiage. And I'm not sure how to translate it into a higher, mm -hmm. you know, into higher ed verbiage. And so when you're talking about recall, we always talk called that accessing prior knowledge, yeah. you know, and it was uh, but I probably wouldn't call that call it that here or even probably even reference it really like but I would know that it needs to happen mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's kind of what you know was reminding me when you talked about the very first one um gaining the attention that kind of made me think yeah, about how yeah. with yours it was uh, making sure that they're aware of why they're learning so right. again one of those things where it's like you know yours is on the pedagogical sense but and yours is more of the andragogy but it's very similar it can be i think you can transfer some of those to other contexts i just worry that with adults it might be too prescriptive whereas they if they need self-directed mm -hmm. learning opportunities you're it not allowing not that yeah mm -hmm. i also wonder too because yours was a language learning class mm -hmm. how that would transfer to adults and if they would still need that more prescriptive um learning and teaching for learning a new language i'm a bit skeptical but then okay. then again See, i don't know anything about teaching a new language but it's good to have a lot of no actually no you're, you're right uh, it's good to have a lot of mm -hmm. you want a lot of structure especially with beginners mm -hmm. you know some teachers come in and even for their beginner learners they speak only in that target language yeah mm. right immersion so, mm -hmm. yeah so you, that needs to be incredibly structured because you yeah. cannot use words that are not in the textbook exactly right. and i mean i and i've done that with uh within k-12 but the adult learning theory what would they say about teaching adults you know a new language would they say that same thing would it work the same way and i guess so probably i, I think you know. try to bring it back around to how it's relevant to them mm -hmm. they're they're taking french for a reason maybe they used to know it and they forgot it or they mm -hmm. they're gonna go take a trip but they're a significant other. Uh, so there's a reason why, why they're there. Yeah. So you got to play towards that. Kids, they're just there because their parents told them to be. So <laughs> like, I'll take care of the curriculum. Captive parents. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to get in, put in jail if you don't go to school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So let's continue this conversation on Twitter. Feel free to tweet us with your experience escaping the ivory tower. We love hearing from our listeners. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an in instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instruction by design at ASU.edu. 
To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. My name is Aaron Kraft from the Academic Innovation Team at ASU's College of Nursing. <laughs> Sorry. Why are we? Because on your notes it says, my name is Jeanette. Not, not my notes. <laughs> what? You Online? must have printed before I changed that. Maybe. <laughs> I did it today. Yeah, I changed it this morning. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs>